1: I'm Tracy Walbrink, and I'm one of the pediatric intensivists at Boston Children's Hospital. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Suchitra Ranjit. Dr. Ranjit is head of the Department of Emergency Medicine and Pediatric Intensive Care at Apollo Children's Hospital in Chennai, India. Suchitra, it's a pleasure to have you here today.
2: Thank you, Tracy.
1: Now, Suchitra, you're an expert in dengue hemorrhagic fever and shock. And I'm wondering if for those of us who don't routinely see this condition in our intensive care units, if you might describe sort of a brief overview of what dengue fever and dengue hemorrhagic shock is and how these patients typically present to your intensive care unit. Dengue is an interesting disease
2: because um, uh, prior to the 1970s, only about nine countries had dengue, uh, uh, which was described in that patient's. And it's now epidemic in more than 100 countries. And uh, almost 50% of the world's population is now at risk of dengue. And why is it that a disease that was confined to the tropics is now spread so much? It's basically all about um, dengue being a 20th and 21st century opportunist. And that's been facilitated by the extensive jet travel and the global population growths, the growth of cities, and sometimes it's happened in such an unplanned manner that there's overcrowding and uh, ineffective vector control. Dengue is usually caused by one virus of which there are four serotypes. So if you get an infection once in your lifetime, you are protected for the rest of your life from that one serotype, but you can get each of the other three serotypes. So it is a problem especially because the second infection is much more severe always than the first. It's a very common condition in the tropics. Most children and adults would have just a bit of fever and uh, muscle and bone pain. It's not a big deal but a small proportion can get very unwell and need uh, treatment in the hospital and sometimes in the ICU, basically because of a lot of plasma leak and a few unfortunately have superimposed hemorrhage as well. So, um, to answer your question, uh, the uh, the immunopathogenesis is all, it's a huge cytokine storm that happens and most of it happens after the fever has subsided and that sometimes deal delays the diagnosis and recognition of dengue. So um, all the cytokine storm uh, causes all the blood vessels to become really leaky and the plasma leaks out. So essentially the patient has hypovolemic shock. So the fever's down, they're in shock, but there's no external losses unless they've been vomiting. That's the hallmark of severe dengue, it's vascular permeability but the losses are internal in for the most part.
1: So that's really interesting. You know, it sounds like with this degree of uh, capillary leak syndrome, it sounds quite similar to a lot of the conditions that we see in our ICU every day from sepsis from bacterial or other viral etiologies. How do you distinguish uh, the sort of cytokine release syndrome from dengue fever as compared to some of the other bacterial or viral conditions? And is that even important um, when you're treating patients with dengue? Yeah.
2: That's a really important question, uh, Tracy. And so that was, our, in fact, one of our early publications where we reckon that both dengue and septic shock were infective conditions, both associated with capillary leak. And fluid resuscitation has been shown to save lives. We could um, as as well apply the same septic shock ACCM PALS algorithm to dengue shock. And um, we compared, we used the same ACCM guideline and compared outcomes to historical controls. At first glance, it seemed that uh, we were doing really well, because what we did was we gave, just like septic shock, we gave rapid boluses of Fluid until we reached about forty to sixty mLs per kilogram, and then gave some colloid. Used echo for serial filling, and then the patients who were in fluid overload, we used Lasix infusion or dialysis to remove the fluid. So we could demonstrate that the PICU mortality actually dropped from sixteen percent to uh, to about six point three percent, which was a remarkable fallen mortality. So at first glance, it seemed that we were on the right track. But then we look back and um, it was strange that so many patients needed therapies to remove fluid after they were out of shock. And some of them were fairly invasive. We needed to pop in a peritoneal dialysis catheter. Mm-hmm. And these were patients at risk of bleeding complications. So Um, we figured that maybe we've been giving a little too much fluids for dengue and the two types of shock were probably distinct. At at about the same time, this important paper from Bridget Wills came out in NEGM where um, they gave just about 25 mils per kilogram in two hours time and preferred colloids for severe shock and the mortality was just 0.2%. And this was in a center with not much of facilities of uh, mechanical ventilation. So um, what was very obvious was that we needed to, septic shock seemed to require more fluid and dengue shock, lesser fluid. Mm-hmm. And in, a, in areas of the world where both of them would present to the emergency room, it was important to differentiate between the two. And we did a head-to-head comparison, a small study of 16 uh, dengue versus 16 uh, septic shock. And what was um, interesting was that dengue patients, the fever was down by the time they went to shock, whereas septic shock patients either were still febrile or hypothermic. The pulse pressure and septic shock tended to be a little wider, whereas dengue is a typically narrow pulse pressure shock. The fluid requirement was a lot more in sepsis, and the need for inotropes or vasopressor was also more so, and of course the hematocrits much higher in dengue. So um, these were the ways a clinician at the bedside in the emergency room could quickly make a differentiation and um, not overload a patient with dengue who we need very slow gradual. Gentle filling. Mm -hmm.
1: So this is a good time to stop and ask our viewers to participate in the discussion. Please state your city and country location. The question is this. In your hospital, do you commonly treat patients with dengue shock, septic shock, or both? If so, briefly describe your approach to the management and monitoring of these patients. We're back now with Dr. Ranjit. So it sounds like if you can identify the patients and treat them early, they do better. Um, But what happens when they actually make it to the ICU, these severe cases? What kind of strategies can you help uh, sort of tell to the audience to help us improve the care of our dengue patients in our ICU?
2: So the patients who need ICU care are the ones who have presented late. Mm -hmm. So the initial fluid um, is not sufficient to reverse the shock. And um, those of the patients are, um, it's its not like the usual diarrhea and dehydration, the hypovolemic shock that pediatricians are being raised on, mm-hmm. because there's no measurable loss unless they've been vomiting or um, hemorrhagic consequences. So it's hard to know the endpoints and features of dehydration are absent. When you first look at a child with dengue, even... Before they get fluids, they're already looking bloated. They're already looking edematous. Their lungs are wet. Their livers enlarged. So it it's a bit scary to give more fluids to a patient who's already looking wet, and therefore, in a, in a bit to have more objective kind of um, of endpoints to fluid, and also the fact that it's so easy for them to come with hypovolemic shock and in a few hours they are in fluid overload. It's a very smooth slide that can be imperceptible. So the objective endpoints would be uh, obviously improved perfusion, so warm limbs, good capillary refill and um, steady fall in the hematocrit. So the hematocrit's gone up because the plasma's leaked out and adequate uh, urine output. So Remember, at all times, we remind ourselves that we don't need to completely fill them up, just just enough to uh, achieve the lower range of euvolemia. So we aim for a urine output that's low normal. If a unit has people who are experienced and looking at the IVCs, that would be useful. We didn't have very good... um, um very good experiences with using a central venous pressure to to have a gauge of circulating volume. but unfortunately there's so much fluid in the lungs, in the belly, so there was competing pressure um, you know pressures from all sides and in most cases it was falsely high and that was impeding fluid resuscitation and um, I think the most. Worrisome was the fact that insertion was actually dangerous because once you hit the wrong vessel or, or puncture the vessel a couple of times, they bled and bled and bled. And that was uh, not a very good um, consequence of a CVP. So we kind of um, concluded that a CVP had more risks mm-hmm. than benefits and it is being done less and less only when a when a child needed uh pressers or you know was really unwell but with ultrasound guidance mm-hmm. and uh what was an even better uh, low tech cdp equivalent was um the uh, Foley catheter mm. so um it worked in two ways a urine output would tell us that um, the perfusion status had improved because the kidneys uh, uh, get the second largest blood flow in the body. And uh, so if the child starts passing even 0.5 to 1 ml per kg per hour, it signals that hypovolemia is now better. And plus a urine output more than 2 ml per kg per hour, which is generally considered normal, could be one of the earliest signs of hypervolemia. So that'll tell us that we better dial, dial back the fluids. Mm-hmm. Of course, with a caveat that hyperglycemia and nobody sneaked in any diuretics along the way. So if there's no, uh, if the blood sugar was normal, so uh, it, it gave two important um, uh, messages to us that we controlled hypo, well, there be corrected hypovolemia, and also we could prevent hypervolemia. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, which fluids are you using to resuscitate these patients? Are you using colloids? Are you using crystalloids? What's kind of your fluid of choice? Yes, yeah, so um,
2: crystalloids work very well, and it's saved a lot of lives. Uh, it works very well. It's cheap. It's readily available. Mm-hmm. And um, the problem comes when Children with severe shock um, need large, so the initial 20 and then the requirement is ongoing. You cannot dull down the fluid. So if there is 20, another 20 and maybe 10, 10, 10. So about four or five hours go by and you're still on large volumes and the urine output is just a trickle. So you're immediately worried that All that fluid is leaking out and going to cause, uh, you know, bad consequences of fluid in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. So at that point, um, we would think of using a colloid. Normally, when you think about albumin in a situation of capillary leak, the concern was that albumin would leak as well into the lungs and drag fluid with it. And in fact, make things, the whole, a bad situation much, much worse. And that was a reason why many people hesitated to try albumin. But um, we did um, uh, try albumin uh, in children who we couldn't dial back the crystalloid um, infusion rates. And um, so we found that in most patients, it really helped and we could get the positive fluid balances down. But in a few patients, it seemed to hurt. And and so you need to be really vigilant and monitor the um, when you use mon- um, albumin to find out where it's helping. Mm-hmm. And uh, these would, would be our uh, endpoints. Like, uh, obviously, the perfusion should improve. The urine output should improve. The pulse pressure should widen as the hypovolemia was corrected. The hematocrit should come down but importantly the respiratory status shouldn't worsen right mm-hmm. so I pulled out some case sheets where we used albumin and um, you can see this was a child who was about 15 kilogram and on the left hand side is the intake and um, uh, the child's getting 150 ml per hour going on for one, two, three, four hours and the urine is just about one ml per kilogram per hour. It's not too bad but she's getting more and more positive. She's already got about 600 ml and passed only about 60 ml and then urine dropped further to about 5 ml and um, somewhere here we started albumin and you can see here the urine's picked up quite briskly and uh, continued to have, um, I mean, continue to flow even after we stop the albumin. And out here is a blood pressure charting. So the pulse pressure is a little narrow here, but after starting albumin, it becomes pretty, it becomes warden out nicely. So this corresponded to the improvement in <coughs> in the urine output and the fall in hematocrit. So we did have pretty good results, but um, and that's why we want to study it more rigorously. Mm-hmm. But it's important to remember that once you started, um, the whole unit must be aware that we're starting a drug that does help, but it can hurt in a small um, minority and we must stop quickly in those children. Mm-hmm.
1: We'd like to take a moment now to involve our viewers in the discussion by asking a question. In your response, please state your city and country location. The question is this. In your PICU, for patients with dengue shock, do you typically resuscitate with crystalloid or colloid? How does this compare to your fluid choice in resuscitating patients with septic shock? And now we're back with Dr. Ranji. Well, what about um, inotropes? When do you guys, do you, do you ever sort of need to use inotropes when you're managing these patients? And if so, what would be the trigger that you might use to pull when you, when you want to use inotropes for these patients?
2: Right. So this, there's a uh, slight deviation from patients with septic shock, is especially in relation to inotropes. So in septic shock, if they are fluid refractory, you would think about inotropes, but in dengue shock if they are refractory to crystalloid or colloid, the most important thing to remember is that they might have occult blood loss, usually in the gut. So uh, it may take a while before it comes out from the lower end. So if shock is persisting despite appropriate fluids and the hematocrit is not looking almost normalish, think about blood loss and at that point giving them whole blood it's simply the best kind of uh, product that you can do for this patient but it may not be very easy to get in those in that case you might need to give packed red blood cells but uh, certainly some patients with dengue can have myocarditis although it's not very frequent Some degree of myocardial dysfunction can occur from prolonged shock so it's an ischemic kind of decreased coronary perfusion and ischemic myocarditis. So be that as it may some patients whom you adequately fluid resuscitated and um, given them blood as necessary if they're still in shock you would need an inotrope and it's just that if the uh, blood pressure is really low we would give them epinephrine and otherwise, um, dobutamine, right? So it's basically an inotrope, either an inopressor or inodilator, depending on the blood pressure.
1: And when do you um, start thinking about hemorrhage? Um, that's a good question. Uh, when do you suspect bleeding?
2: Obviously, if there's external bleeds and the child's been throwing up blood, it's easy. But sometimes it can be an occult bleed. And um, if we give more and more RBC free fluid to the at this point in time, that can cause a very abrupt uh, deterioration in their overall condition. So it's important to think of it early. If they are still in shock after thirty or forty mL per kilogram, we I think um, it's really important to think of bleeds, and uh, the clue might be that. Generally, if it's just plasma leak, if it's all plasma leak, the hematocrit is going to be really, really high. Mm -hmm. But if it's plasma leak and RBC loss, the hematocrit which is high rather being really low will be somewhere in Mm mid-range. So a normal-ish hematocrit in the presence of low blood pressure um, should lead one to think of uh, hemorrhage and uh, or if you've already given fluids and the blood pre- and the hematocrit falls inappropriately think about bleeds mm-hmm. and the other uh, clues might be a persistent metabolic acidosis high lactates severe abdominal pain especially if the the child's bled in the gut and a very lethargic or restless patient mm-hmm. so i have this little bit of pictorial representation of what happens to the hematocrit and If a patient is, so that's how the child starts off before he started, he or she started leaking. So the hematocrit say about 36, Mm -hmm. right? So when there's plasma loss and the compartments narrow, the hematocrit goes up purely as a hemoconcentration. If there's plasma loss and blood loss you'd almost reach the pre-illness hematocrit of 36. And uh, when there's excessive uh, blood loss, it's only then that the hematocrit starts to fall. So the difference is that the degree of shock is much, much worse. So when they've lost plasma and they've bled, the degree of shock is extremely profound, Mm -hmm. right? So um, correlating the the clinical features of shock with hematocrit can give one a pretty good idea of um, whether they've bled, and then there's a real urgency to get the RBC in pretty quickly, mm-hmm. because that's the single therapy that will
1: save that patient. Now you're describing how important the hematocrit is to okay. sort of follow and trend. What is your management strategy in terms of monitoring. What are the labs that you find important to send, and how often are you tracking them? Obviously, the more labs you send, the oftentimes the delay of coming back and where you are compared to what you're treating um, and where your treatment pattern has gone. So, So what do you do? Do you have a standard protocol that you follow? Is it more tailored to an individual patient?
2: Yes, Tracy, so to answer your question about what kind of lab parameters we monitor, not a whole lot, not a whole lot of lab parameters except a serial hematocrit. Okay. And um, in some hospitals, they have a little machine at the bedside where uh, you can take a few drops of uh, from the patient and you have the result back immediately. So it's really the hematocrit and maybe if they are very acidotic, uh, you would follow blood gases. Mm-hmm. But essentially it is Point of care kind of monitoring and um, as I said earlier, we are fixated with the urine output Mm -hmm. and even the nurses are pretty tuned and they um, they note down the target um, urine for each patient and let us know if it's less or more than expected. So um, that is a very useful kind of low tech and effective monitoring tool. So we do do hematocrit, and uh, if it's like 50 or 60 and it gradually comes down with fluids, we know we're on the right track. It can get a bit messy when they start bleeding. So a sudden fall may indicate either you're overhydrating them or they've bled, right? So we had to uh, correlate for the clinical situation. A serial echo we have done for fluid titration but then you need people with expertise and the IVs the inferior vena cover can be compressed simply from all the fluid in the belly so um, not always useful but um, if you can do it just gives additional information. Clinical examination may can detect is good to detect shock but not so good to follow because of all the cytokines that's storming around in the body their um, uh, extremity perfusion may not be may not be a good uh, indicator of what's going on with their perfusion so cbp as i said earlier it's not useful at all and uh, certainly looking at their lung their respiratory status and liver size may not be useful so it boils down to just clinical examination, urine output, and a hematocrit, Mm
1: -hmm. and blood gases once in a way. Once again, we'd like to turn to our viewers to ask a question. In your response, please state your city and country location. The question is this. Where you practice, what types of monitoring strategies have you found to be most helpful in monitoring the evolution of hypovolemic or dengue shock? And now we'll return to the conversation with Dr. Ranji. Now you mentioned earlier, um, you know, about some of these patients that do get fluid overloaded, mm-hmm. and that many of these patients have wet lungs. What proportion of these sick patients actually require invasive mechanical ventilation and support? And are there any specific um, considerations upon induction or anything that you worry about when you actually do have to intubate and mechanically ventilate these patients?
2: If you think about what's being taught to in the emergency room and critical care units, you tell your fellows to intubate early mm-hmm. when patients have um, breathing difficulty and shock, especially when, when they have boats. Um, but in dengue, some patients can deteriorate very badly when we, after we give them drugs for induction and place them on positive pressure ventilation. I think the whole deal is because they're already in hypovolemic shock and the positive pressure decreases the preload quite dramatically and they can suddenly get a lot, lot worse Mm -hmm. um, when that spontaneous uh, respiratory drive is abolished with drugs. Mm -hmm. And um, now we've learned that uh, to delay ventilation, intubation as far as possible, so in my mind, dengue comes right up there with, with um, say asthma or DKA, where you'd 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 want to delay intubation, and if their lungs are really bad and they're very hypoxemic, we would give them a brief trial of um, non-invasive CPAP, where their spontaneous drive is still maintained and their preload is um, is not blunted in any way. Quite apart from the whole problem during intubation uh, even after they're placed on positive pressure ventilation. Um, the uh, ventilation worsens shock, once shock is worse you get even more fluids and then the wet lungs worsen, the, uh, the belly gets tighter so hypoxemia worsens, the airway pressure goes up. So it's a, it's a pretty bad cycle and um, best avoided
1: um, rather than treat it. Now, how long is the, the natural course of this disease?
2: That's the beauty of dengue. It's it's a huge storm when it lasts, uh, just after the fever's down. But it's just 24 to 48 hours that they are, they are in the eye of the storm. Mm-hmm. So um, while some uh, children do get by with uh, CPAP positive pressure for about 8 to 10 hours, a few may need a longer period. But... To answer your question, it's about 24 to 48 hours that they are really unwell and um, they can look as if every organ has failed and uh, they're desperately fighting for their lives. But it's really worthwhile trying every effort to save them because after the period of um, the the so-called critical period, they improve very, very rapidly. And there's hardly any sequelae in terms of limb loss or organ failure or neurological deficits. In fact, they're discharged by, I mean, once you're better in in a week or so, and another week they're ready to go back to school and nobody can tell the difference. Mm -hmm. So it's really worthwhile. Mm -hmm. So they're they're very well-nourished children, get extremely unwell and bounce back to their Former, uh, former well situation, so.
1: Which I think I now understand why you are so focused on the fluid overload problem. Right. This is a time-limited problem, and if mm-hmm. I would imagine if you give a lot of fluids early on, mm-hmm. they end up staying in the hospital for longer to try right. to get that fluid off. Mm-hmm. It, is that?
2: Sure. Even the short critical period is now extended and they mm-hmm. need more therapies to mm-hmm. remove fluid.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as we were talking about earlier, the WHO classification has uh, changed, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to sort of the concepts of why there were, the change was necessary and, and what the new classification scheme looks like. Right.
2: So it the old classification worked for many, many years in many countries, and there were many research papers based on the former who classification it had four grades and the grade one and grade two had was more um based on the tonicity test where a, a blood pressure cuff was tied in the on the upper arm and the number of uh spots were counted and uh, grade two was more spontaneous breed uh, bleeding and grade three and grade four were children who actually had Shock, and so the difference was grade four, were the sickest with an unrecordable blood pressure, and there was also platelet count of under one lakh was also a criteria. But then people found that people were uh, that the workers um, dealing with dengue were getting a little fixated with the platelet count, which in some children were maintained even when they were in shock. So, um, there was a move towards getting a classification that not only um, de emphasized the platelet count, but also uh, warned, also could um, preempt the critical stage by, by describing warning signs. So, there are some warning signs that a patient with dengue is going to go into a sick critical period so uh, the current classification which came out in 2009 it's just got two main limbs so there's dengue with no warning signs and dengue with warning signs so dengue with no warning signs would be just children who have a bit of fever and feel unwell but otherwise breeze through warning signs are, are those with um, so especially abdominal pain and vomiting So it alerts the caretaker that this particular patient may have problems, so you would not send such a child home. So there's dengue and severe dengue with um, children who have shock, respiratory symptoms, severe hemorrhage, and any kind of organ failure, right? So organ failure wasn't a part of the previous classification. So liver, kidney, uh, encephalopathy, any organ failure was severe, right? rapid fall in the plated count all of those came in severe dengue uh, I have this slide of the uh, this is a, a beautiful slide that's actually was, um, was put forward by WHO I have a pictorial representation of each phase with what happens so initially there's fever so there's pretty high grade fever with no clear focus and after the fever comes down on day three or day four is when a small proportion of children get into strife with with a lot of lung fluid shock or bleeding and um, and and that's a time that if you look at the labs the hematocrit starting to rise and the platelets are starting to fall so there's a lot of things that happen together and once the clinician can recognize that all these things are happening we can quickly get our act together get some fluids on board and so after that 24 to 48 hours of the critical phase is a recovery phase most children do very well but a few of them can have lung issues as well because when all that fluid comes back to the vascular compartment they can go back into pulmonary edema
1: well, thank you for this wonderful overview of dengue and, and how these really critically ill patients with dengue present in the ICU and are managed. Mm-hmm. I wonder if I could ask you, as an expert in dengue, what do you think are some of the future strategies that we don't know, that we need to explore and, and pr- do more research on? Where, where's the field going?
2: Right. So what, I've, what was really curious for me as a clinician was um uh, to, uh, to see how these really well-grown well-nourished children um fared so much worse than the mal- little malnourished rats who kind of breeze through so um it would be nice to to know what's happening from the immunological front and what exactly is the nature of the cytokine storm people have have done research in this area but it would be really nice if you could pinpoint the key ones and and find ways to block or neutralize those cytokines and uh, nip the whole storm before it got out of control. Uh, so that was one. And um, as a as a as a caretaker and clinician, I'd like to know um, when they present in the emergency room because. Two children who come at ten o'clock in the morning, with similar kind of features of shock and hematocrit and platelet uh, level, one would be fighting for his life in the by evening, and one is uh, almost you know ambulant and uh, just taking a bit of oral extra oral fluid. So it'd be nice to know if we could if there was a way to predict which are the sicker patients because we could triage them and uh, focus our attention on them so that would be great as a future futuristic thought
1: fantastic i wonder if you wanted to just um leave your last words of wisdom what are the key things and key take-home pearls that you want all of our viewers to sort of take home from from your presentation today
2: Right. Uh, it would have to be prevention, mm-hmm. right? So it's not a, a new disease. It's been around for years. And we know that with the monsoon, with the rains, uh, dengue is the next uh, inevitable consequence. So um, I guess if um, the public health and the health other health workers, doctors, nurses, everybody involved would focus on prevention on education and um, controlling sites for mosquito breeding Mm -hmm. and after all it occurs every year so we should be getting better and better at it Mm -hmm. and uh, so that so prevention and also widespread dissemination about the early features of dengue so that we could catch them early Just give them some extra oral fluids and uh, not have them come into the ICUs fighting for their lives.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much for this absolutely fantastic overview. Um, I'm sure that our audience has uh, gleaned a lot of important and valuable information from your talk and some real um, teaching points on how to manage these patients, because I worry with all of the travel that I might see a patient that has dengue fever in my ICU at some point. And now I think you've given us some really great strategies and things to think about. So thank you very much.
0: Thanks very much, Tracy.